Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Arc's FYI podcast. My name is Yasin Almandra. I cover Bitcoin and crypto at Arc. And today I'm really, really excited to be joined by none other than David Puel. So, for those who don't know David, he is a prominent crypto on chain analyst. In fact, the on-chain analyst that I've learned from the most over the last few years, who's developed some of the most reliable on-chain metrics. And he's also the co-author of the most recent white paper that we just published covering the power of on-chain data. So for this episode, we wanted to basically use the framework that we use in the white paper to discuss on-chain data, its importance, you know, how we get to the metrics that we get to, and really give some context as to some of the work that David and I have spent doing in the last year to develop a framework to assess Bitcoin's fundamentals and really provide a simple approach on, on how to analyze public blockchains broadly. The reason why you know, I think this is really important is just how unique of an asset Bitcoin is relative to traditional asset classes. And with that uniqueness, it's really unable to fit within the framework associated with these traditional asset classes. And in many ways, that's prevented institutional investors and, and investors broadly from not only understanding it, but, but adopting it. And instead of considering the unique attributes that Bitcoin provides, a lot of investors just dismiss it because they don't necessarily have a framework to analyze its fundamentals. And then even those who are convinced and can appreciate Bitcoin's merits as this non-productive monetary asset, they're unaware that there is a, a wealth of data out there that permits investors to you know, understand Bitcoin's network activity and inner economics in really more granularity than, than any traditional asset. So hopefully this back and forth conversation is going to allow the, the audience to get an understanding that you know, Bitcoin and public blockchains have a ton of data out there. And by extension, they have very strong fundamentals. So welcome, David. I'm really excited to have you on. Hey, Yasin. Thanks for having me. So I, I think the best place to start is maybe just giving your take on you know, what on-chain data is. Well, on-chain data is basically, in simplest terms, whatever is the field that studies whatever data comes off the blockchain, right? As many people are familiar with, the blockchain technology has is based on a timestamp ledger that pretty much registers transactions through time. And that's the core of, the, of its basis value proposition. So it's an emergent field going back to perhaps 2016, where innovators like Chris Berninsk and, and Willy Wu took that data and transformed it in such a way where you can actually get a sense of 
let's say in broader terms, if Bitcoin is overvalued or undervalued. And then in more details, when years progressed, them and other analysts pretty much iterated upon that to invent a very robust data science field that is devoted to analyzing the inner economics of Bitcoin and other crypto assets. Right. That makes a ton of sense. And I think one of the important things to note here is the nature of this data being open source. So you kind of, you mentioned sort of this publicly analyzable data that's really scraped through the blockchain and the ability to basically use that data and parse that data and come up with kind of relevant insight. Can you talk a little bit about the nature of that data and particularly, you know, in the context of Bitcoin, why it's easy to extract such insightful data with Bitcoin relative to other crypto assets? Yeah, so I actually think that even more than scarcity and decentralization, the most underrated value proposition of Bitcoin is transparency. And on-chain is proof of that, because not only you can cryptographically verify that the monetary policy of the asset is actually playing out as by inception, you can furthermore use the timestamp recorded in the public ledger in an open source system and take that into getting an aggregate of activity of holders, potential activity of buyers and sellers. So whenever you get a robust enough system, you can have a sense of what institutional players most likely keep skeptical from, meaning I don't know how to value the asset. So the first thing would be Bitcoin is completely driven by supply and demand as portrayed in the blockchain. And that's also verifiable. That's also in and of itself a value proposition. And it's not subject to, let's say, even if it's subject to macroeconomic forces or the animal spirits of the market actors that play with it, you can still see that in the inner economic activity portrayed on chain metrics. That's completely unique to Bitcoin and perhaps a few other crypto assets as opposed to the legacy system. So over the years, pretty much the task that we and other on-chain analysts have been performing is iterating to get this data in the most clean and visually clear way for the mass audiences. I think that's in line with the open source tradition in, in, in the crypto industry. And then taking that as an educational tool to investors, institutional or otherwise, to get a sense of how Bitcoin actually correlates its price movements to, to that underlying supply and demand, crypto, which is you know, cryptographically verified. Right. So I, I think you bring up a really interesting point and, and one that I think is underappreciated on Bitcoin's transparency being one of its fundamental value propositions, especially as it pertains to the ability to analyze it. And, you know, in the piece, we kind of discuss three of the network's characteristics that I think are, are fundamental to really suggesting why not all blockchains are created equal. The first is really that, that Bitcoin's transparency means that it has a very simple accounting system. Mm -hmm. So there's basically the unspent transaction output account based accounting system, which is allows for investors and, and I guess data analysts to track supply and audit monetary policy much, much more easily than an account based system. 
the code itself is also very verifiable. So the implementation of Bitcoin's protocol lives in code that has been scrutinized more than any other open source software code. And then finally, the efficiency of the extraction of that data is unmatched. And that's basically a function of Bitcoin nodes and their cost efficiency relative to you know, other cryptocurrency network nodes. That has to do with basically Bitcoin's base layer being extremely simple and doing just a few things very, very well, rather than kind of overloading it with feature-rich characteristics. And so especially when it comes to on-chain data, the ability to extract that data usually starts with Bitcoin as that main protocol. And then every other protocol is sort of following suit from there. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Actually, if you, if you go back to your precise example, realize gap, which is a very popular metric right now, on-chain metric. I think it took almost a year for CoinMetrics to get realized gap after Bitcoin, despite the fact that the concept was already out there. So just to give you a sense of how the, you can compare account-based system to the UTXO system and how extracting data from the UTXO Bitcoin system may be much more faster for and cost-effective for analysts and archaeologists. Yeah, and we'll definitely get into realized cap and, and provide a little bit of context there. Before we do, I think the best way to summarize the power of on-chain data is relative to how you know metrics are analyzed in sort of other fields. So in the piece, we allude to this, where in the same way that you might have a government statistical agency that publishes data about a country's population or economy, or you have a public company that publishes quarterly financial statements that disclose growth rates and earnings, Bitcoin and by extension, public blockchains provide this real-time global open ledger that publishes data about the network's activity and intereconomics. And so without central control, Bitcoin's blockchain specifically provides this open source data and its integrity is, is really a function of its transparency. And so I think that mental model really helps people understand, okay, it's just a new asset class, which requires an entirely new framework by which to analyze that asset. And I'm quite proud of what we were able to do over the last year in trying to formulate some sort of framework. And I think uh, the basis of that is the on-chain data pyramid that really goes into kind of the type of data that on-chain analytics can provide and which stakeholders that data is most relevant to. So for those who are listening, we would highly recommend downloading the paper and following along here. And for those who are watching, I'm going to quickly share my screen and dive into some of the, the framework and really the basis by which we think we should be analyzing these public blockchain networks. So David, do you want to quickly explain you know, the nature of, of this three-layered pyramid and how one builds on top of the other? Right. So I'll start with the lower layer, which is, you know, the, you could say the infrastructural base of the whole field, which we title network health. This mostly relates to metrics that by themselves may not give, let's say, buy or sell signal. That's not their purpose. It's more basic metrics like circulating supply, hash rate, active addresses that especially in aggregate give you a sense of how healthy Bitcoin looks relative to its price and to its history. These are, let's say, the fundamental data points being given 
by the blockchain at any given time. And the metrics that pretty much confirm day in and day out that the monetary policy is following its schedule. The network is being secured by miners. There's, to some extent, network activity in terms of transaction count or active addresses, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So let's go through, you know, I think one of the more important metrics that this network health layer provides, and that goes specifically with monetary policy. And when you look at Bitcoin specifically as this monetary asset, the fact that you're able to confirm Bitcoin's monetary policy is acting in accordance with its program deflationary schedule of this hard cap of 21 million units is a fundamental feature that Bitcoin offers that really no other public blockchain offers to that same degree. And so when we're thinking about Bitcoin's predictability of monetary policy as one of its you know, most important attributes, the fact that I can go at any time and see exactly how much Bitcoin is circulating in supply and track kind of the nature of where that supply is going really confirms the robustness of Bitcoin's you know, ability to act as this monetary system. And then you have things that, you know, David, you alluded to like, like hash rate, right? Which is like the total compute power of, of the network that effectively is a proxy for Bitcoin's security. And we're able to kind of track that. The important thing here is that the data is, is relatively raw in its nature. And to David's point, doesn't necessarily provide actionable advice for investors, but nonetheless, is extremely important to reaffirm some of the longer term fundamentals of look, Bitcoin is acting in accordance to kind of the rules of the network. Yeah, it pretty much goes back to the very core value propositions of Bitcoin, meaning, okay, if I'm a new investor and buying Bitcoin because I'm avoiding inflation, at the very least, you want to confirm that the deflationary monetary policy of Bitcoin is playing out, right? And you can do that with historical right. circulating supply and the daily new issuance coming into, you know, the expected inflation rate of Bitcoin at any given day. So for those who are listening, we have two charts that we showed. The first is Bitcoin's circulating supply chart, which you can see, you know, mirrors the promise of Bitcoin's issuance being cut in half every four years and tailing out at that 21 million Bitcoin. So today or, you know, as of the end of November, circulating supply was around 18.8 million. And of course, is going to asymptotically top out at around 21 million. And like a corollary or extension to this data point, we also see, you know, inflation rate, which today is at around 1.7%. And you can see very cleanly just how predictable Bitcoin's monetary policy is and how beautifully it's played out today. So going on to the second layer, David. Yeah, so... The second layer pretty much covers cost basis is the central concept in what we call buy and seller behavior as a second layer. Cost basis serves as a way to, let's assume you're analyzing a Tesla stock or whatever asset, and you can get a sense of the aggregate price point where the market actors bought that stock, right? It would be parallel to that. Of course, in equities, we don't have that, but we do in Bitcoin. So it's a set of metrics that analyze either investors or miners' cost basis in different ways. 
and also their profit-taking or loss-taking activity in the network. This specific layer also focuses a lot in mean reversion, but it's mean reversion very much based on fundamentals as opposed to our familiar technical analysis going back to you know the 200-day moving average or whatever. Having the cost basis allows for fundamental-based mean reversion, as we'll see next in realized cap or thermal cap. Right. I think it's important to circle back here on, you know, why Bitcoin's ability to identify cost basis is much simpler than, you know, other assets' ability to identify it, given its UTXO-based accounting system. So specifically, the UTXO-based accounting system allows analysts to track two data points in every address on the Bitcoin ledger. The first is the number of coins that are located in each of those addresses. So volume in this case, and then the amount of time those coins have been in each address. And David alluded to this a little bit, but if the same system were governed by the equity markets, that would mean that anyone interested could track the ownership of company shares by quantity, by holding period, and by purchase and sale prices. So when you think about a non-productive asset like Bitcoin, whose value is really driven by supply and demand, then the ability to identify who holds what for how long at any given time is exactly what you'd want to understand the underlying fundamentals. And that's effectively what the second layer provides. I think one of the most groundbreaking metrics is what is referred to as realized capitalization and is really, in other words, the cost basis of Bitcoin. Um, so I'm going to pull that up on the screen here. But David, if you want to explain realized capitalization to the audience, just to show how, how interesting of a metric this is, that'd be great. Yeah, so it was a metric invented by Nick Carter, Antoine Le Calve, way back in 2018, I believe. It first came as a way to get a better sense of Bitcoin valuation. And what it does is, you know, if we compare it to market cap, which is the, the product of circulating supply and price, what we realize cap does is instead of taking the price at current value for any given coin, it assigns the price where the coin last moved and then aggregates that into a single line or cost basis, right? So let's say if there's a coin that was last moved in 2013, it would have the price of that year, right? So given that last transaction timestamp, it's just one example of how we can get and play around with different factors in the Bitcoin timestamp and volume stamp in each address to produce this kind of metric. So what you, for the audio audience, what you're seeing here is pretty much a very smooth line that obviously correlates with market cap, but market cap tends to overshoot it by you know, orders of magnitude in top cycles, in the cycle tops. And then when it corrects into bear markets, it tends to overshoot to the underside, meaning that market cap is lower than realized cap. Market cap is lower than it's the cost, general cost basis of Bitcoin, meaning most market actors at, are at a loss. That's by definition market capitulation and usually correlates with cycle bottoms in Bitcoin historically. 
So as, as of today, for those who can't see, the total realized cap is around $450 billion. I do want to circle back to one of the points that you made about realized cap, just to give a little bit more context to those who aren't familiar with heuristics in the on-chain world. But can you explain exactly how the transfer of the asset itself is you know, a proxy for a buy and a sell and by extension then determines cost basis. I think that that's a, like a really important point that, you know, if you could just elaborate on, it would be very helpful. Right. The fact that we select the, the last transaction price for the coin as opposed to the current price is because it assigns a timestamp in terms of time and price to that coin, which denotes how much the buyer has held the asset, right? So when you add that amount up, it successfully gives a line where most of the market actors last transacted. That's very important because it gives you a sense of for how much time and in which amount those holders have been pretty much stuck to their position, right? Which is very, very important to give you the inverse of that whenever you see a lot of movement of old coins going back into circulation that usually correlates with market tops, right? As you would expect. What you want to see in a healthy market is old coins staying put, not being moved, staying dormant, and with the added value of buying activity, right? That's pretty much the definition of bullish inner economical behavior. So realized cap pretty much confirms that those old coins are sticking to those older prices as opposed to updating to newer prices and therefore most likely selling today, right? Right. And usually it's not necessarily a one-to-one, but the transfer of an asset on chain denotes, you know, selling behavior, whereas the holding of an asset on chain denotes holding behavior. So if you're not moving your assets, you're likely long-term focused. And if you're transferring your assets, you're likely transferring it onto an exchange and then selling it effectively. Yeah, so, or, or an OTC or, I mean, there's several instances, individual instances where a transaction can incur, right? Like a friend giving a Bitcoin as a gift, let's say. And that's, of course, not selling behavior. But as an aggregate, it works especially well because, you know, the heuristic is if people who have held the asset for a long time are moving that asset at much higher prices, most likely they're taking profits, right? right. I think first principle- Or they're transferring it to a new entity that effectively establishes a new cost basis. Exactly, or, or potential selling pressure. Like, right. I don't know, if you invest that in a company, you don't know- uh, So even if you were is. to, even if you were to gift it to an individual, that right. individual's <laughs> cost basis is now you know, the current prep market price. Exactly. So yeah. It reestablishes it. And turnover is something that can be, you know, annualized with extreme granularity in the Bitcoin markets and, and is, is helpful. So back to the pyramid and this last layer, and you'll, you'll notice that each layer really provides a specific benefit to a specific type of stakeholder, but that, you know, the universal set is all stakeholders and observers, right? And that's, the network health or the first layer provides the necessary data for those. But as you start to 
become more of a of an investor or potentially even an active manager, the nature of the data changes and your ability to manipulate that data to derive, you know, I'd say more actionable short to midterm insight evolves. And so when you have an understanding of the cost bases and the holder positions and effectively the buyer and seller behavior of Bitcoiners, you can then further iterate on that to derive asset valuation metrics. And so, David, do you want to explain what the third layer looks like and how that's particularly useful for those who are actively managing around Bitcoin's volatility? Yeah, so this is the most iterated area currently and historically of on-chain analysis because, you know, the incentives for having buy and sell signals in Bitcoin are pretty high, right? So analysts pretty much have looked for alpha anywhere they can. And I think one of the most reliable sources of that is the third layer of the pyramid as evaluation. This derives, of course, from the second pyramid. So for the most part, we take either layer one or layer two metrics, and then either by a simple function like a ratio or a C-score or a product, we take that and transform it into something that, especially visually, makes a clear case for either a buy, a sell, under or overvaluation over time. Uh, even more than that, I think it's the area where you can have the more granular metrics in terms of time scale. We do see metrics that have a very long-term analysis, the cyclical analysis, you know, multi-year. But then we also have other metrics which are much more granular and serve for, let's say, give you an increase buy or sell conviction on a month-to-month, even weekly basis, right? This is perhaps the most sophisticated area, but also since it seems to provide the most value for active managers, it's the most popular area of on-chain analysis. And to give you an example, one simple transformation of this would be realized gap, which we already talked about, and then taking that into a simple ratio with market cap. So you divide market cap by realized gap, and you get the MVRV ratio, which is one of my contributions to the space with Murad Mahmudov. So whenever you get that ratio, you're going to put it. Yeah, MVRV is, is the first one in that section. So MVRV. And you uh, probably want to explain that this is a Z-score MVRV. But... Exactly. So this is adjusted for volatility via a Z-score. But for the most part, the ratio looks pretty similar in its raw form to what you're looking at here. For, for, to give audio context. What you're seeing is a, an oscillator that pretty much goes up and down. It goes, as we've mentioned, this is a mean reversion mechanism, right? Another way to visualize mean reversion. So whenever it goes up above, let's say, 6 to 12, so meaning market cap is 6, six to 12 times that of realized cap, that usually denotes a cycle top historically. And then when it goes under it, meaning market cap is less than realized cap, that usually denotes a good place to, to accumulate the asset. And so conceptually what that means is that if the realized cap is greater than the market cap, then on average, 
the entire aggregate cost basis is underwater or selling at a loss. And so you can see historically that that tends to mark a cycle bottom. The last one we saw that was really in the COVID meltdown in March of 2020, when for a brief moment, realized cap exceeded market cap. And that happened to be the bottom of the cycle. Right. That was a, a very atypical event in not only world history, Bitcoin history as well. For the most part, you see a prolonged period of market cap being under realized cap. And that gives you at the very least three months to accumulate historically, if not a whole year. But yeah, I mean, this, this is pretty much what especially technical analysts look for in traditional markets, right? Like in essence, when you look back in the invention of this whole array of metrics, RSI, moving averages, all that stuff is trying to assume the cost basis of the market, right? Your 200-day moving average you know, has been a, an attempt from especially retail traders to get that holy grail cost basis of the market. But in Bitcoin, we actually have it in a cryptographically verified way, which is extremely important and underappreciated in my view. And I, I also think that in terms of on-chain, that's where a lot of confusion comes from analysts when they see on-chain in the sense that they see this type of chart. It looks so simple, right? It looks so, the visual patterns that it creates are so simple and clear that it seems too good to be true in a way, but you're actually looking at fundamentally cryptographically verified metrics inherited to the inner economics at Bitcoin that are not based on, let's say, technical assumptions. They're actually based on transaction flows over time. And I think that's one of the most underappreciated aspects of this whole field. It's so easy and simple to get and analyze in a way, yet the information it provides is so fundamental and so verified at such high level that, you know, it is quite unique. Agreed. To draw just an analogy, and then we'll go into some of maybe one original metric that we've created, back to you know, traditional equities, you can really think of these oscillators or these buy and sell signals as similar to you know, maybe like an EV to EBITDA ratio in, in traditional equity analysis. So those are really based on your ability to analyze the, the balance sheet or at least you know, extract data from a company's financial statements and then come up with, you know, basically relative valuation metrics that provide some sort of heuristic for whether a company is overvalued or undervalued. I think the difference there is that you tend to use those ratios in comparison to other companies that, you know, provide, call it the same product or service. Whereas the unique thing about, you know, these oscillators is that you don't necessarily need to be comparing them to other, you know, public blockchains, they stand and provide enough context alone. So that's just another interesting sort of bridge between the traditional world and, and the crypto world. The other one I would mention is that since the information is cryptographically, you know, mathematically secured, the data that you get from, from the blockchain is much more trustworthy in the sense that it's not prone to human error, corruption, I mean, to give the context, if you stick to on-chain data in terms of just analytical trustworthiness, 
you will never get an, an end run in on-chain analysis, right? You'll never get a tyrannical government faking their books and then you're getting analysis based off of that data. This is and it's, I mean, it's not only that, but it's provided on demand 24-7. Right. So and it's like, yeah, exactly. You don't have to wait every quarter to get disclosures from the management. You can access it whenever you want. So that's a good point. This is as granular as the 10-minute heartbeat of Bitcoin, right? The transaction block. Exactly. So we'll we'll wrap this up with one of the original metrics that we've developed within ARC. I think part of David's explanation of the layer three is that for active managers who trade around volatility, and that's something that we do at ARC, it's really, really important to kind of develop frameworks that aren't necessarily as obvious as what the general market consensus uses as data. And so part of the piece in this white paper is we want to just give a little glimpse as to the type of data that you can derive if you know where to look. So this is one of my favorite ratios, the short to long-term realized value ratio and provides really interesting insight. So David, do you want to provide an explanation for both the, the listeners and the watchers? Yeah, so this metric is an extension of Another popular on-chain metric called Rottle Ratio. The names are, the once you get familiar with, with the taxonomy of all this, it gets simpler. But what we're looking at here is a simple ratio of the 24-hour. Was it the 24-hour or, or the weekly? This was the one day to the yeah, six. 24, so 24-hour 24 huddle wave. We haven't gone through huddle waves. So yeah, huddle waves back yeah. up and explain huddle waves for this. So huddle waves are in essence, it's a way to get a sense of how much movement in terms of relative supply is being transacted over time. So usually you get about 12 huddle waves and each represents a time scale, meaning one day, one week, one month, one year, up to 10 years right now, right? So. To give the audio context for the chart you're looking at here, this is the relative supply contained in each H-band, right? So in the chart here, we can see that whatever Bitcoin moved in less than one month, so the update of the chart, it has 10% of that supply. So 10% of outstanding Bitcoin moved in the last month, right? And then so on and so on until the 100% is filled. And that gives you a sense that, for example, if the one-year huddle wave, meaning the relative distribution of the amount of supply of Bitcoin that has been moved in the, in the last year increases, that usually suggests selling pressure, selling behavior, profit-taking, right? And the inverse is true as well. If the one-year huddle wave or supply moved goes down, then you get a uh, holding behavior and bullish sentiment. Yeah. So the, the best way you can think about this is that it, it's segmenting total circulating supply into holding period bands, which allows for you to get an understanding of how much supply is long-term versus short-term focused. And you know, the metric I think that we alluded to in the white paper is that over 50% of Bitcoin supply hasn't been moved in two years. And so that suggests you know, fundamental long-term holding behavior. Of course, you have to factor in lost coins 
But for the most part, this really suggests that Bitcoin holders are becoming more and more long-term focused. This chart would be one that would fit under the second layer. And so you can then use basically specific bands in the case of the the short to long-term realized value ratio, we use the, the one day and six months to one year HODL wave. And you can actually further overlay that with realized cap. So the HODL wave that the traditional HODL wave takes the, the market capitalization, but you can, you can segment realized capitalization into holding period bands. And so David, do you just want to explain you know, what the ratio is and what it's suggesting? Yeah, so basically when you weight those two huddle waves, the one day and the six months to 12 months huddle waves, you weight them by realized gap, meaning you have two separate cost bases, right? One very short term and the other one mid to long term. You get a sense of how those economical activities compare to each other, right? So in the ratio, historically you see a, almost an exponential increase in the short-term activity whenever you have irrational exuberance in bull markets, meaning the later stages of the bull markets when you see you know, 2x, 3x increases within a week or two in price. That's you know, mostly in 2011, end of 2013, end of 2017 or so. And then, but the, the most important part of this metric is that network activity in the short term, especially relative to the long term, completely collapses in bear markets. So the um, one day realized huddle wave makes the, when the interactivity of a network is pretty much apathetic as soon as the bear market engages and there's no buyers coming into a market, that usually correlates and collapses the ratio into, you know, below its 0.04 threshold, which historically has confirmed bear markets or complete apathy in current activity relative to historical activity, right? So that usually is a good confirmation that the bear market is in effect. And because we usually see that in bear markets, color activity increases, which is healthy and is one of the factors that have sustained the Bitcoin price for so long. And, you know, with relatively mild corrections for its upside compared to its upside. But given that we have high holding activity, but still a bear market, we have to track new buyers. If new buyers are coming into the market to, you know, start the uptrend momentum again, what you you usually see is that daily activity completely collapses compared to a six months to yearly activity in the bear markets, you know, pretty much confirming the apathy that correlates with typical Bitcoin bear market. Great. Great. Well, thanks for that explanation. I can end the the screen share here and and we can just wrap it up with high level thoughts. As you can kind of take, if you've read the paper, that this is definitely an emerging field and one that I think institutional investors specifically are going to derive tremendous benefit from when they're thinking about how to, you know, analyze their own portfolio allocations. So, you know, What's also interesting to see, and I don't know if you guys took note, is where we are relative to this market cycle. And so many people, you know, tend to, you know, ask us where do we think we are in the market cycle? Are we at a top? Are we have we bottomed? And quite honestly, we rely on chain metrics to determine, you know, where we are. And 
from the charts that we showed, you can see that we're in pretty much neutral territory where, you know, we're not necessarily at these market cycle bottoms where the realized cap is still well below the market cap. But, you know, we haven't hit that irrational exuberance where relative to previous market cycles, we are at the top. All this to say that at ARC, we are actively engaging in the on-chain community to not only develop our own metrics, but to figure out better ways to analyze the Bitcoin market and effectively provide educational resources for Bitcoin investors to understand the dynamics that are going on in the Bitcoin economy. To wrap up, David, I'd love just if you can spend a brief moment because you are, I'd say, one of the more prominent on-chain analysts, the developer of the MVRV ratio. You know, you helped ARC develop five original metrics. What goes on in kind of developing these active management relevant signals? And are they going to last forever? How do you iterate? What do you think about when going on? How do you start that process? Okay, this might be an interesting metric to look at. Love to get your take there. Well, simplicity is important in the sense that you have to, this is for creating a specific metric, right? Yes. For the most part, you want to stick to, let's say, the on-chain primers, which are very few metrics like transaction volume, hodl waves, realized gap, and perhaps two or three others that are the building blocks of on-chain analysis conceptually. And then my recommendation would be do not overthink the functions you apply to those when you're trying to compare either two of them or them with price or something like that. The basic functions are tend to be very reliable and simple ratios, products. I think that the most complex function I have used is C-scores for volatility adjustment, right? The visual patterns in on-chain are very clear, usually, right? You get a sense of whether the, the metric is working or not, just looking at the chart for the most part, and then you can you know, extrapolate and confirm through correlations or power laws or whatever you, you choose to confirm a statistical value in a given metric. And then I would say working from simple heuristics and first principles always helps. And it's crucial to this analysis, meaning your metric has to make sense from a first principles perspective. I mean, to give you a specific example, a lot of um, discussion going around stock to flow ratio, which is a very popular metric right now. The skepticism arose given that from first principles, the metric didn't seem to make a lot of sense, right? It accounted only for the supply side of Bitcoin as opposed to the demand side. That's one example. In terms of the metrics working for longer, well, Lightning Network is going to play a role in it. Right now, it's completely irrelevant. I mean, last I checked, Lightning Network had about a little over 3,000 Bitcoins in, in supply. 18,000 channels, and I believe, I think it was 18,000 nodes and 82,000 channels. So that's about 0.17 Bitcoins per node. It's pretty minimal, right? The outstanding supply light network is experimental at current levels. I would say whenever light networks takes over 1% to 2% of the total circulating supply, that would be relevant for, you know, double-checking how it affects all of these metrics. 
perhaps today the factor that is most affecting or could affect the metrics right now is the um, the role exchanges and mostly custodians are playing in the market in the sense that they're holding such large amounts of the supply. To give an example of NVT, which was one of the first metrics we saw in, in the on-chain world created by Willy Wu, that's basically inverse velocity or um, a way to um, ratio transaction volume in BTC terms with circulating supply. It's still pretty useful, but it used to be used as a, as a bear market detector. So whenever you see a transaction volume go way down, you usually saw detected a bear market. And it played out for a couple, for two or three cycles, but then it doesn't seem to be useful anymore. From first principles, whenever you have, you know, a lot of the supply getting restricted, sucked into entities that never redistributed, but still incur into some selling pressure, like a custodian, right? So instead of, to my knowledge, custodians today still incurring on-chain transactions between addresses and and redistribution of ownership in their ledgers. But it can also come about that, as opposed to an on-chain transaction, that eventually becomes a database, a change in their internal database, right? Right. So there's basically just a risk of a lot of the activity moving off-chain, whether that's exchanges, Lightning Network, or you know, even we're seeing wrap Bitcoin on Ethereum. I think around there's between one and two percent there, which is you know really interesting to see that trend coming along. Yeah, there's definitely a risk the more the more Bitcoin activity occurs off chain. So great. Well, you know, thank you so much for your time, David. Really enjoyed this conversation. For those both listening and watching, thank you for tuning in. Would highly recommend going on our website and checking out the paper and, and providing any any feedback or constructive criticism. You know, we we're available on Twitter if you guys want to reach out to us. And thanks again for your time. Thanks, Eugene. Pleasure. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.